0: You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds, here for your Murder Mystery World Tour, and we are here in our third episode discussing Alison Moore's Death and the Seaside. We are talking all the way to the end of the book. Herds has made it, at long last, to the truth of this tale and the very strange, wacky intricacies of the science of
1: Sylvia Slythe, psychology. Yeah, well, Sylvia Slythe, she's she's a funny one, isn't she? I kind of love the way that we thoroughly deconstruct her insanity as this book goes on because we've we've finally found out that everything I said last week was 100% true and not exaggerated at all. She is, in fact, the mad scientist that we've been looking for, but she is perhaps more mundane. That I was led to believe.
0: Yeah. We essentially find out through one of the weirdest chapters in the book, chapter 17, what Sylvia Slythe has been up to. So Sylvia has been up until this point in the story, Bonnie Fall, our protagonist's landlady. But it turns out that she is at once an incompetent scientist or incompetent psychologist- and also has the machinations to fabricate an entire hotel.
1: The lengths that this lady will go to for her own passions are kind of wild. I love the way that we're actually delivered. Like the first prop. I mean, th- there are there are other hints. Like she turns up late to to Bonnie and her. They're, they're going on this holiday to to Seaton because that's where Bonnie's story is set. And, and she turns up late, which is a little strange because so far she's been coming and going as she pleases. And she's she's always, you know, not quite chastising Bonnie, but she's always, like, there to remind Bonnie of her inadequacy. So it's strange that Slythe is, like, late to pick Bonnie up. When they live in the same house. They live in the same house is <laughs> exactly right. But as they're, like, driving to go to, to quote, unquote, Seton, we notice, as akin to Slythe's writings on uh, on Innsmouth and the, you know, the, the fish people, how they have the scaly skin. And that's something that she like noted down for her, her literary analysis of, of Bonnie's work. We note that there's paper mache that's like built up. And it's from her like painting a room. It's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. She's been like painting a room. So she's got this, like white paint on the back of, of Slythe's hands. And she's scratching it. It's peeling off and it looks all like slimy and scaly, much like the fish people, which is a really fun way of like through- like calling back to that literary reference to show us that, you know, Slythe is that untrustworthy fish person, mm-hmm. you know, all along.
0: The thing that's really fun about the sort of reveal of Sylvia Slythe or, or Dr. Slythe in chapter 17 is that it isn't, I guess, where you would normally expect this explanation to be in a murder mystery book. And it's not it's not really a murder mystery. Uh, in the conventional sense, we covered it more for its atmospheric purposes and its
1: connection to Eight Detectives by Alex Cavesi. It's more like a near murder mystery, really. Yeah. Like, sort of. We'll, I, we'll get into that a bit later, I'm sure. But
0: the reveal happens several chapters before the end. And it's this wonderful series of events where we go through the psychological tests that Sylvia Sly that turns out is actually continuing on. On Bonnie in the present day. Bonnie had happened to show up to this psychological experiment uh, with her mother who was actually the test subject when Bonnie was seven and what it was is that Sylvia was showing three groups of people, uh, videos with a positive command, videos with a negative command and a control group. An an imperative these like imperatives were not positive and negative in the sense that they were emotionally positive. They were just do or do not. So it was don't fail or fail. And it was don't jump or jump.
1: Yeah. And and, and the novel's like playing a a clever little structural trick here, because obviously this is like, we, we had a chapter earlier where sides grandmother and mother, you know, they had a little debate as to whether telling someone not to do something would make them do it anyway. So the the example is like smash the glass versus don't you smash that glass. Obviously this is something that Slythe was interested in. That's why she carried out this experiment in the first place, but she's also not really interested in it to prove anything scientifically. No, she just wants to see someone jump out a window. Yeah, she just wants to indirectly murder someone. Her entire experiment is in shambles. She plays the same tape twice, once for group B and then once for the control group who weren't supposed to get. It's all these subliminal messages, right? All all the, the different tapes have either positive or negative subliminal messages. Jump and don't jump. And then the third group has no messages as the control, as the the science, the science group.
0: I mean, my my favorite line in amidst all of these mistakes that she's making and showing the wrong videos to the wrong groups is when she says during group B, she says, Oh, well, I just opened the window a little wider before group B came in. Because she doesn't care about the experiment
1: being scientific. She just wants to see someone die. Yeah, she wants to she wants to push her own outcome to the experiment, which is a problem that real psychologists suffer from when they're like, well, maybe if I just put a little bit more weight on this end of the experiment to see if I can get the very specific thing that I'm looking for. What's more, she she falls into her own experiment, which is a classic, I believe, Stanford prison experiment problem. When you get so invested in your own experiment that you end up embroiled within it. She exposes herself to the video, you know, she watches the first control group and she thinks, well, that's fine. If I've watched the video for all the positive things, if I just watch the negative one, that'll like cancel it out, which is not real science. We've had all of these bits through the story,
0: including like Bonnie's mother saying, well, there's no point saying don't drop the plates to someone because you've
1: still put the idea of dropping plates into their head. And what's more, she then watches the third video, which we've established. It's just the other negative video. So she's like, she'd have to watch the positive the positive one another time to cancel it out again, which just, it just doesn't make any sense. The science is off the chain. We also have these very bizarre flashes to, is it Elliot Pierce, who
0: is the only other subject other than Bonnie- Which Sylvia
1: seems to think she has success with. She reasons that because Elliot is like young, he was like eighteen when he saw the video, and now she's dealing with Bonnie, who was seven when she saw the video. That it's an age thing, but like even that is the most bare bones scientific conclusion that you can reach. Whoa, whoa, hurts! You're suggesting that kids may be more susceptible (laughs) to to impressionability. Well, exactly. Like whoa, wild! This is a crazy idea. Wow, you've really done it slight. You deserve the psychological Nobel Prize, whatever the equivalent is. We
0: don't even really find out what happened to Elliot. Like, he he fell from a three-story car park and landed in a coma, but it's never covered whether he jumped or whether he, like, fell off in another way. Sylvia is just assuming that her own test has worked because all she wants to do is indirectly murder someone.
1: Well, and also, this is something fun that Alice Moore was is doing with the information that the individual characters have. Right. Because we see the whole thing more or less <laughs> from the, from the top down perspective, like we're getting Slythe's independent perspective of her own work through her writing and through, you know, how significant she thinks everything is, what it's all, it's all crazy nonsense. And Bonnie, as she's, like, suffering through her version of, of the movie Misery. Though we don't quite get to the, like, Cracked leg situation, but, <laughs> you know, it, she, she, she has a hard time with Slice. She, like, ties her up in a bed. It's a whole thing. But she doesn't really get what's going on because she is just, she's very trusting, and she thinks, what possible reason could my landlady have for doing all these horrible things to me? You know, as she's locking me up in my room and spoon-feeding me and drugging me and turning me into a chicken. Like, what what possible reason could she have for being malicious in these things? It just doesn't make sense. So good on her.
0: Yeah, it's it's really strange, especially when we look at how like Bonnie's family treated her. She just doesn't have the same sense of autonomy. Her narration, I guess, feels like she is aware in some way of what's going on, and that's also maybe what Susan as like a role. But, but in the, the story other thing is, is
1: that I was gonna th- throw down here is that much in the same way that Slythe has more information about, about all of that. Um Bonnie Bonnie pulls a switcheroo after Slythe has fallen to her death like an idiot trying to scratch a word on the outside of a of a window in a on a several story high building. Anyway, which is very we're going to talk about the ending in a little bit, I'm sure. <laughs> but Bonnie, as she's looking down at Slythe, she's like, wow, it's kind of like that guy who fell off that building, that Elliot guy. But he was like, fine. Like, it didn't really matter that he fell off that building. Like, it was it was totally okay in the end. And so we see Slythe's inflated importance of her own work and her own research. And what I really love about, about the ending is that it, it dwells in the mundanity because last week- On the show, I said, you know, it's going to be this monster thing where Slide's going to get away barely or she's going to fall in the sea. We're not even going to know if she's dead. She's going to be like a a paranoid specter. But this story completely rejects the Hollywood movie tropes and the the horror, you know, nonsense that, that I love so dearly and says, no, this old lady fell out a window after painting a room feverishly for several days she may have been susceptible to death by falling onto a concrete slab and that's what happened (laughs) and then the story kind of just ends it's it's like a positive ending yeah bonnie calls an ambulance and then just leaves yeah it's great like it's a positive ending for bonnie in that she was able to get herself you know out of the out of the room and like figure out what's going on sort of not really like enough to escape, but not enough to really understand the the depths of the situation just to know that Scythe is dangerous and she shouldn't be there, which is fair enough.
0: Well, yeah, because the, the thing that we've sort of covered with Bonnie's character so far is that she may be incompetent in many ways and people don't have a lot of trust in her, but she has survived all of those circumstances. You know, so much of what we see of every other character in the book is them basically just bullying Bonnie. And we do have this little bit at the end where every character kind of gets a redemption moment, like Fiona, who had been a little cold and distant, turns out was actually part of an animal activist group and was there undercover, which is why she was being all weird at Bonnie's workplace. Her parents, despite being cold and distant and arguably terrible parents, did at least try and warn and rescue her, but Sylvia kind of took that opportunity away from them. There's like all these little moments of
1: redemption for everyone except Sylvia. I mean, look, I'm. I'm gonna say she doesn't deserve it. I think she. Look, she dedicated her whole being to ruining Bonnie's life. You know, and it's. It's. It all comes down to that whole like letting the experiment play out because that her, her narrative, not her personal narrative, but her narrative about Bonnie, because that's really what we're reading here. We're reading Sylvia's notes like an academic paper that Sylvia has written about Bonnie, um, with this like beautiful dream like aesthetic to it yeah I've, I've been I've, I've written my fair share of academic papers in my time and the way that the literary fiction is is peppered throughout this story is the same way that i would like reference i don't know psychologists or media theorists or whatever whoever, whoever is whoever i need to um to reference at the i time mean and that. that also says a,
0: a lot about sylvia too in that she treats like academia as, as if it's a story that she can just make up and go along with.
1: Yeah. And, and her story here about Bonnie is that when she was seven she drew a bunch of rectangles in a book and she heard fail. And now she is failing because of that one moment when demonstrably there are, you know, other factors in her life that are leading to her failure. Her parents aren't particularly supportive. She doesn't seem to have a supportive friendship group of any kind. Her closest friend just tried to kidnap her, arguably succeeded, just not for very long. <laughs>
0: like, yeah,
1: she has money problems. She's in a the housing market, which is just totally shafting her. Like, she's got all of these independent issues that are causing her to fail. But the underlying. Narrative that Slythe is trying to push is it's this one moment when, if Slythe was not obsessed with her own work, she could just say, Hey, Bunny, do you need some help? I can see that you're having some trouble. Perhaps you have some trauma you would like to work out with me, a psychologist, step into my parlor. Uh huh. Like, if circumstances were just a little bit different, Bunny could work on this stuff. <laughs> it's it and Scythe only holds that that help back because she's obsessed with with seeing Bonnie jump yes and I wanted to
0: before we wrap this up here herds bring in a little question that we asked Alex Uh Pavese about death in the seaside when we spoke with him a few weeks ago about why it was a book that he has self-described being an evangelist Mm -hmm. for Uh, so I'll I'll throw you over to Alex Pavesi. Because I think it connects really nicely with that whole idea of the like dreamlike state that you were talking about, Herds. I've been looking to challenge young Herds here to uh, Death and the Seaside by Alison Moore, which is a book I've seen you bring up in a number of interviews
2: and on your blog. Mm. What has you so hooked on that book? I was just really impressed with, uh, you know, it's a weird story. I don't know if you've read Paul Auster. Paul Auster is an American author who well, was initially famous for writing kind of detective novels mm. that were written in the, uh, like, American hard-boiled style, so kind of like Raymond Chandler or Dashiell Hammett. But The stories wouldn't really make any sense, um, to be blunt about it. You know, it'd be uh, some guy gets hired to watch some other guy, but then the other guy also seems to have been hired to watch him back, and this guy just ends up watching this other guy for the rest of his life, subsuming his own identity, keeping notes, whatever those kinds of stories like they start off as detective stories and then they don't really develop into into mysteries that have solutions they just kind of riff on the aesthetics and get very abstract and get very strange and very surreal and when I first read Death in the Seaside it it, it noticeably had that kind of flavor so I was thinking like this isn't going to go anywhere by the end of this book the story won't make any sense it's going to be all ambiguous and um, you know leave everything open and I was just really impressed that um she actually managed to make it into a coherent story. I mean it probably stretches plausibility quite a <laughs> lot. But, um, so good. <laughs> but you know it's a coherent story and uh, and yet it manages to retain that kind of weirdness that you get with a Paul Austin novel and I really like that. I mean i I like my thrillers to be coherent and to have endings. but if you can do that whilst also kind of having the slightly strange, slightly surreal slightly dreamlike feeling that you get with those kinds of novels for me that's the perfect blend
0: Alex Pavesi there talking about Alison Moore's Death and the Seaside which is our novel of discussion this week here on Death of the Reader we'll be back with more of that in just a second stick around you're listening to 2SER 107.3 You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your murder mystery world tour. We are discussing Alison Moore's death and the seaside. All the way to the end, Herds has been in a hot seat. And Herds, there is, there is one character that so far this episode we have not
1: really discussed. Mm. Well. And
0: that is Susan. Susan Lee.
1: Yeah, I mean, she's a funny one, isn't she? Um, because I thought going into this novel and in, in the first part, maybe even the second part, that she would turn out to be like a real character who existed and we like like figured out who she was and her story, but that hasn't happened. In fact, Slythe has gone to extreme extents to create her fictional space in reality, right? Like that's, that's what the whole latter third of the book is about, Slythe being like, how can I manifest your fiction as truth?
0: In metafiction, one of the core things that we really enjoy, especially in the mystery space, is that when you say, which of these two things is more real, which of these two things happened, you know, is one character the real layer of reality or is the other? The answer is normally yes. And to some extent, you could still argue that case with this book because it is unfalsifiable, much like Sylvia Slythe's research, might I (laughs) add. But the book also, as you say, does go to lengths to demonstrate that Susan is the fiction within the fiction. There is not that same explicit ambiguity about Susan.
1: It's not just that we, like, prove that she's fake or anything. That's not really what we do. What we do is we just spend very little time proving that she's real. Yes. Slythe spends all the time learning about Susan saying, so how does- how does your life parallel with Susan's Bonnie? What do you think she's up to right now? But we never ask the question of, you know, is she actually real? Where did she physically live? Slythe mm-hmm. uses the narrative of Susan living in Seton, potentially to draw Bonnie over to her to her trap, to her den. But we don't really get to see Susan as a real character with any sort of agency. She doesn't do anything important other than act as a representation of Bonnie's trauma from all those, all those years ago. I do enjoy though. And again, this is the structure of the novel, poking its head out. I love it so much. Looking at the way that Bonnie is attempting to sort of healthily deal with her problem through fictional expression, right? Like she's dealing with the fact that she's a failure and the fact that she feels like she has to jump and she's like writing all this stuff out. in her her novel. And then Slythe creates that space in real life. She turns something that should be relatively safe and makes it real and dangerous by opening the window. And that is, I don't know, it's just interesting that both of those spaces are not real. You know, they're both manufactured, but one of them is in a book and the other one is a physical two-story high building that actually killed someone, right? (laughs) Yeah. And it was was slightly ironically.
0: Yeah, I guess guess the thing I wanted to drag us to here is your points, Hurts, because I set you two challenges in addition to the regular figure out who done it and how and two different theories. And one of those challenges was to predict something using a sort of literary clue. And the other one was exacting upon the way the book would end with Susan's layer of reality. I feel like the Susan's Lay of Reality question was perhaps a little, a little ungamesmanly of me. A little
1: bit bit lacking in fair play, so to speak.
0: (laughs) But I I still think that there's maybe an argument to be made that you, in talking about Lovecraft and the Innsmouth people Mm. in the first week, kind of got a leg up on that whole scene of Sylvia in the car with the glue on her hands (laughs) from affixing this wallpaper. Because there's this wonderful scene that you touched on where, yeah, we're talking about the Innsmouth people and the scaly nature of her hands. We then arrive at the hook and parrot, which is the real inn that Sylvia has recreated for her quote unquote experiment. And Bonnie walks in there and says, oh, there's- one wall wallpapered and the other two are blank. I guess that's a modern thing where they try and make the room She's look so bigger. so interesting. Whereas really <laughs> just Sylvia ran out of time to finish doing the wall. It's ridiculous. Which is why she was late. No,
1: I honestly, I love that that was like the big through line. It's like trying to create this room in the same way that fish people might try to create a facsimile of human civilization. I do want to call out actually specifically the addiction theme though, just while we're here, because- Like, they specifically, right after talking about, again, that idea that whether you put don't jump or jump onto a sheet of paper, either way it's going to prompt someone to potentially jump. Mm -hmm. We have had this continual motif of Bonnie going back to her cigarettes. They call out in the final chapter, pretty much, that there is a cigarette packer that she's pulling in a one-last cigarette from, and it says, don't smoke on the front. And this is very clearly Alison Moore being like, hey, maybe the the phrasing don't smoke is actually no better than smoke. That's crazy. And it's not a specific tight
0: idea, which connects back to everything that you've said there in that much in the way that a lot of literary fiction is, it's, it's about someone's life and all of the things that happen in it are kind of just real by proxy. Yeah. Like the housing troubles, the addiction troubles, all of this stuff is just part of her life and we get to see it real through her life rather than necessarily tackling those issues explicitly and wholly and it sort of really nicely ties itself up in that way that I was talking about earlier where everyone gets their little bit of redemption because whilst they definitely have been a part of the problems that infest Bonnie's life it's not just them right? They can adjust their ways. Things can change. And, you know, we sort of have this, this little triumphant scene of Bonnie driving away, even though her mother's been like, oh, don't let her drive. Don't let her drive. Bonnie
1: has to get away somehow, right? Like she has to physically move. Yeah. She has to get away somehow. And she's escaped Sylvia, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not like 100% redemptive, but it does highlight how the people in her life who are neglectful of her feelings and of her agency are not necessarily doing what they do out of of like malice. This is something that I I see a lot in both in real life and in in media where like, you know, sometimes you get these really exaggerated stories about like, these are the abusive parents who just, they just (laughs) beat you up every day and they lock you in the basement and then you develop superpowers to throw the school teacher around. and Yeah, very, very escapist. Very escapist, very exaggerated. And obviously that's, that's like for kids, but themes like abuse and neglect can be more than- those black and white cases. And even though we do see that her parents care if she's not dead, they don't really do much beyond that. They don't like send out a search party for her. Just, oh, I tried to call you to to warn you. Like that is the bare minimum. There there is an element of redemption there in that the parents and Fiona being the animal rights activist. They're not entirely terrible people but they are people and they are multifaceted, just like how someone with a God complex is not immune from cracking their head on a concrete slab, for example.
0: I mean, speaking of gods, <laughs> I suppose yes. it's, it's time we, we touch on Knox and Van Dyne and their aversion to, I suppose, preternatural agencies yes. is the thing here, because it's very clear, I guess, in a sense that the hypnosis, the suggestive psychology that quack scientist Sylvia Sly has engaged in hasn't really done anything. Like, the book does not actually ascribe any power to her, but it also doesn't in the way that you might expect mystery fiction to come out and say, well, it wasn't that, here's the other explanation for what happened. And there's kind of this fun unfalsifiability to it. And I guess there's something similar in a lot of the mystery sense through this book where... You can get ahead and guess a lot, but it doesn't feel as rigid and solvable as the mystery books that we're normally covering on this show are.
1: I was going to say, Doctor Slade doesn't have any more power than a, a typical Victorian era housewife who wants to make sure that their children aren't doing anything naughty during the night, so they tuck their arms into the into the blankets. Did you think that was like the most bizarre? way of foreshadowing locking her up in a room it was
0: pretty strange and i guess crass but at the same time i thoroughly enjoyed
1: it i just thought it was a wild way to throw that in there it's definitely
0: big and in the same out of scale sense as a lot of the imagery about the Mm. sea you know where the ocean is so large and ridiculous and all-consuming in many senses and that's kind of part of the way that it's spoken about in fear in this story, but the sea cannot take that all consuming action in this narrative in the same way that all of these little weird literary allusions
1: and historical pieces are just kind of larger than life. Yeah. I mean, the narrative definitely uh, refrains from pinning down one particular metaphor, although it obviously does come close with, with the Innsmouth stuff in that one scene. Yeah. And like Scythe doesn't have overwhelming power either. Like she clearly has money and time and drugs apparently, maybe a roofie or two. I think there's actually something quite telling in the I am Dr. Slythe chapter where she says, I wanted my experiment to be a bit like those plays where you're in the audience and then suddenly you realize you're not in the audience at all, you're part of the act. Like she views her ability to manipulate people and to carry on these experiments as a bit of a show, a bit of a demonstrating of her ability to convince people. I mean, she has Bonnie thoroughly convinced that she's not a bad lady, which is demonstrably untrue scientifically, empirically.
0: I suppose, Herds, you will be walking away with your three yes. points this week and you have a new challenge to set me
1: for next week. I do. This is going to be an interesting one. Your challenge next week, we're, going to be, we're going to be moving on- from the beach and the seaside and the cry of the gulls. So the work of a knight commander with star of the papal order of St. Gregory the Great. I am, of course, talking about G.K. Chesterton. Oh, my goodness. And his work with the Father Brown series. So we're going to be reading The Innocence of Father Brown. We're going to start with just the first, because the collection is short stories, which is great when I'm trying to figure out how far I want you to read. I love it. <laughs> we are going to be reading up to the story, The Invisible Man. I'm going to have you solve that story live on air. And you are going to be reading, because there's no chapters, there's no real page numbers. You are going to be reading up to the line, the tale does not belong to this world. The tale does not belong yeah, to this right world. Yeah, just write that down. Already, already. Write that down. And that's just before Father Brown walks in and says, actually, it's all very simple. Let me figure it out for you. And I'm excited to talk about the journey of the heart of a thief because- there is some continuity in these stories and it's wild. It is it is a wild set sort of short stories. I'm excited to get into this.
0: I am very excited. Father Brown is something that we have been circling yeah. covering on the show for ages and
1: it'll be so good to actually finally get into it yeah very philosophical and spiritual sort of stories not all murder mysteries but many of them are
0: finally bringing to a sort of head the leg of our murder mystery world tour that began in earnest with Trent's last mm, case yeah and its link to G.K. Chesterton's
1: The Man Who Was Thursday. I would have loved to have covered that, but unfortunately it's not a Father Brown novel and it's not really a murder mystery. It's a metaphysical thriller with a bunch of spice, which sounds fantastic. Yeah. I may read it anyway in preparation for next week, but not for this show, not today. Alrighty. Well, Hertz, thank you so much.
0: And I hope you've enjoyed thoroughly covering Alison Moore's Death and the Seaside. I really it's have. been a good bit of fun. Mm. We'll see you back here next week for GK Chesterton. You're listening to your Murder Mystery World Tour here on 2SER 107.3.
1: Woo. We're out of here and we'll catch you then. See you for the next one.